the resurrection of Lazarus is a moment I would have liked to have been there. Uh, I hope I would have been one that would have believed. I'm afraid I would have probably been one of the Pharisees that would have doubted if Jesus could have done it. But the word life is a key word in John's gospel. As we look at this uh, message on the resurrection and the life, the word life appears 36 times in John's gospel, more than all the other three gospels combined. It is a key word of our faith. Jesus talked about the water of life in John 4. He talked about the bread of life in John 6. He talked about the light of life in John 8. Paul picked up on it and said, Christ is our life in Colossians chapter 3. Life is what we are alive to. Warren Wearsby introduced me to this quote by George Bernard Shaw a number of years ago. He said, the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of every one will die. In fact, Warren says, you know, that I'll call him and I'll say, did you know so-and-so died? He said, you know, there are people dying that have never died before. But ours is not a religion of death. Ours is a religion and a faith of life. Because of Jesus Christ, we have life. He is life himself. For a person without Christ, death is traumatic and tragic. But for a person who knows Christ, it is a tribute and a triumph. Because death never has the last word for the believer. It is not terminal, it's transitional. You see, if we are not alive at the time of the second coming of Christ, then the only way we get to heaven is through death. And so it's not terminal for us, it's transitional. We transition from death to life. We never experience, we never taste the second death. In fact, I believe that the moment a believer breathes their last breath, the next breath they take is in the presence of God. I don't understand what all that means. The Bible doesn't explain it. But Paul said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you read the New Testament and when you read the concept and the understanding and the theology of life and death in the New Testament, you realize that the best life is not now, regardless of what some authors might say. The best life is the life to come. I hope this is not my best life now because I've got too many aches and pains in my body that it takes a chiropractor and a massage therapist and a lot of prayer to get out of me. I, I hope this is not the best. I, I believe that the best is yet to come. And I'm going to get a new body one day that will never wear out, that will never be broken, that will never be hurt or scarred. Because the only scarred body in heaven is the one of our Lord who bears the scars of paying the price for our sin. Ecclesiastes 3.2 says there's time to be born and a time to die. Nothing proves the sufficiency of Christ like the time of death. Here's what I believe. I believe if Christ is not sufficient at the time of death, then he can't be sufficient for anything else either. 
If he's not sufficient in the deepest, darkest crisis and moments of our lives, then he is not sufficient for the lower valleys and the hills that we have to go over. Because in, in the end, then, then we're just dead. But not when Christ is in the picture. Lazarus had a problem. He was dead. He was not only dead, he was wrapped up and he was buried and he had been in the grave for four days. Now there was a teaching and an idea among the Jewish people that the spirit of a person stayed around for three days after death, kind of like, well, let's make sure they're really dead dead. And, and on the fourth day, the spirit would leave the body. And so Jesus intentionally waits for four days when there would be no doubt and no Pharisee could say, well, Lazarus wasn't really dead. And so he really didn't die, so he really wasn't raised from the dead. So Jesus waited and delayed. He did what we would think was not a loving thing to do, to leave a family in mourning and in grief when they've called for one that they love and a family that he loved. And yet he delays and he waits to go to minister to the family for a greater miracle to be done because he had already healed. Now we've got to see if he can raise the dead. So let's look at the illustration of human misery. And I want you to see, and if you want to, just instead of in your notes, you, if you write in your Bible, uh, just write these words uh, in the side and the margins of your Bible uh, by these verses because I want you to see uh, five or six words that define what's going on before Jesus shows up on the scene and actually raises Lazarus from the dead. In verse 8, you see discord. Discord. They, they tried to stone him. And so there's discord going. This is not a peaceful time in the life of Jesus. He's moving toward his own death. He's moving toward the cross, and the opposition against him is growing. In verse 16, you see the word danger. There's great danger. Uh, well, let's go and so that we'll die with him. They, obviously, the disciples and others know that Jesus is walking into dangerous situations at this point in his life and in his ministry. In verse 17, there's death. Lazarus is already in the tomb. In verse 21 and 22, there's doubt. If you had been here, as if God being physically present, and isn't this an indication of how we think when Jesus said, I need to go away so the Spirit can come. Because at that point, the belief was that Jesus had to be physically present for anything to happen. Jesus said, when I go, greater things are going to happen and greater works are going to be done because you're not going to depend on me limited to time and space in a physical body because the Spirit is going to be with you. And then there's despair in verse 31. They were mourning. And then there's disbelief in verse 48 disbelief in verse 48. Now there's, there's very little in the Old Testament about the subject of resurrection. Uh, there's a mention of Sheol and Hades and the grave and of death, but, but it is an undeveloped doctrine. The, really the first glimpse we get 
of resurrection would be when Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain and says, we will go up and we will come back. In other words, Abraham knew that God had ordered him to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice, but Abraham somehow understood that God could raise his son from the dead because his son was the son of promise. It's a picture of the fact that God did take his son and have him killed, but God raised him from the dead. So somehow Abraham had a concept of resurrection, although he had never seen it. And he believed that God could raise that child of promise up. But when you look at the Old Testament as a whole, there, there's not really much that you can grab onto uh, on the doctrine of resurrection. But as you get to the time of Christ, you have the Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were, that's why they were called the Sadducees, because they were sad, you see. Hey, it's Sunday night, a bad joke's better than no joke. (laughs) But if you can grasp this about resurrection, every truth in the New Testament hinges on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If he had died and not been raised, then everything he taught would have been disproved. The resurrection is the hinge on which everything else swings. Now, Martha, verse 24, acknowledged that she believed in the resurrection. Look again at what it says. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? There's not only an illustration of human misery, but a demonstration of divine majesty. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, oh, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, as a preacher, you get that a lot. You, you know, you, you go to see somebody's had a death in their family, and, and they can give you the Sunday school answer, but sometimes you can look in their eyes and you know they know the Sunday school answer, but they don't know if they really believe it in their heart. And she's given the Sunday school answer. Well, I know, I know, I got it. I checked that box in Bible school. I, I, I remember that. I learned that lesson. I can quote that back to you. I can give you a couple of scripture references, but in her heart, She wasn't there yet. She was there in her head, but she wasn't there in her heart yet. And his question and his statement touch both time and eternity. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. First of all, that death is not final. Death is not final. I've walked away from funerals and and heard people preach funerals. And to be quite honest with you, I, I thought they thought death was the end. Because they didn't give a lot of hope. There wasn't a lot of joy in the fact that one day we will see each other again if we know the Lord. Death is not final. Secondly, there is life after death. If death is not final, that means that there's life after death. Our loved ones who have died in the Lord are alive today in the presence of God. Not alive as we understand it in our limited ability to understand in time and space, but they are alive in the presence of God. 
waiting for a new body. Thirdly, the dead will be raised, John 5, verses 28 and 29. The dead will be raised. I, I may have told you this story before, but there was a guy that wrote a book back in 1988, and he said Jesus was going to come back on that particular day. You remember that? He wrote a little booklet, and, you know, Jesus is going to come back on this day. And I happened to be doing a funeral. I was pastoring in Ada, Oklahoma, and I happened to be doing a funeral. And, and Terry rode with me to the funeral, and we were standing out there. And we just kind of looked at each other for just a second. And we said, you know, we knew the guy wasn't right because even Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour. But we just kind of had this little moment waiting on the funeral party to get there. And, and he said, you know, if he's right, we're going to know one one-thousandth of a second before everybody else. And we're going to turn to each other and go, uh, and then we're going to be gone. <laughs> you see, the dead will be raised. There's coming a day when the saddest place on the planet, a cemetery, will become a very happy place for a lot of people. There's going to come a day when people that are buried in the depths of the ocean are going to be raised up by God. There's going to come a day when that which became nothing but ashes at 9-11 will be restored by the majesty and power of God into a living body that will be raised that could not even be identified after 9-11. There's a change that's going to come. There's a final judgment. There is a final judgment. We will stand one day before God and and face a judgment for the works that we've done in the body, there will be those that will stand before the great white throne of judgment and be judged for their rejection of Jesus Christ. There is a final judgment coming. Everybody is going to face some kind of judgment of works or of their life. And then finally, there are eternal consequences. There are eternal consequences. Everybody you know, everybody you meet, is going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. There's no in-between. There's no go-between. You can't buy somebody out of purgatory and, and get them. The Bible does not teach that. There's no uh, nirvana where somebody's floating around. Everybody you know, everybody that has ever lived and ever will live, will spend eternity, not a period of time, and then they're disintegrated, will spend eternity in a place called heaven, or a place called hell. That's why the subject of the resurrection is a vital subject for us to understand. So let's look at three things here. First of all, his claim. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. He didn't just say, I, I'm going to be resurrected. He said, I am the resurrection. When you see me resurrected, you're going to know there's hope for you. Because God raises me and God's going to raise you. I am the resurrection. I will conquer death. You see, Jesus didn't come to give us a theology as much as he came to give us a life. And I'm the resurrection. Look at, now, let's just kind of walk through verse 4. Let's just back up a little bit and go through this. And, and I want you to see his claim under I'm the resurrection. In verse 4, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. You see, God has a bigger plan in mind than to provide Kleenexes for mourners. He says, this is for God's glory. God to be glorified in this. And, you know, one of the things that 
that I want to do when I preach a funeral is to give glory to God for lives well lived. Because they are a testimony to other people that may not have followed in the same path. Will somebody say that about you when you're dead? Or will somebody just have to make up things and wonder? I mean, you know, I, I've, I've been to a lot of funerals in my life. I've done a lot and I've been to a lot. But one thing I promised the Lord I would never do, I would never lie or exaggerate a person's work or impact beyond what they really did just to make a family feel better. By the way, you can make a family feel better and the family can go to hell while you're making them feel better. That's not my job. Because some people show up at funerals and it's the only time or maybe the last time they ever hear the gospel. And, and Jesus said, this is that the God might be glorified. Verse 9, are there not 12 hours in a day? Now, all he's saying there is, hey, I work in light of eternity. I'm not on your clock. I'm on an eternal clock. I'm not on a stopwatch here. You're not going to box me into days and nights. I'll move when I'm ready. Verse 15, I'm glad for your sake that I was not there. You see, God had something better than healing. He had already healed. Now he's going to show something better than even healing. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. There is a resurrection on the calendar. So the final destination, can I just tell you something? When people go to a, a cemetery and they say, this is their final resting place. It is not the final resting place. Not for the lost or the saved. It's not. In fact, we don't have a final resting place. We have a final presence in the presence of God Almighty in worship and in praise and in service to Him or in the presence of the devil and all of his demons. I don't know about you, but I choose the first. Amen. I choose the first. Now look at his challenge. Do you believe this, that there is something beyond the grave? Now, now Martha believed in the resurrection as a principle, but he's trying to get her beyond the principle to believing it personally now, in this moment. And you, you know what? They say, Lord, he stinks. Now, let me just give you a little thought here. When, when I saw this, I mean, I, I got real excited when I saw this. If it, if it doesn't come across as excited as I was when I saw it, I got real excited about this. Stink is no problem to the one who has taken away the sting. You get it? Jesus took away the sting of death. So stench and stink is not a problem to him because he took away the sting, the power of death that, that man lives in fear of. And Martha said, oh, I know he's going to rise again, but, but right now he's dead. And Jesus said in verse 39, roll away the stone. Now, here's one thing that you and I need to always remember about the Lord. He will never do for us what we can do for ourselves. Now, you say, well, if he can raise the dead, why didn't he just say, stone be moved? He wasn't going to waste his time doing that. There were people there that could move that stone. They had put the stone there. 
They can move the stone out of the way. But there was only one person there that could call Lazarus out of the grave. And any of you that have been around long know that when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, the reason he said it, if he hadn't called Lazarus by name, everybody in the cemetery would have gotten up that day. In fact, we know when Jesus died and the veil was rent that many rose from the grave and walked the streets of Jerusalem. Now, you want to know how hard people are to the gospel and to good news and would rather spend eternity in hell than walk in freedom with Jesus? Dead people were walking the streets, raised from the dead in the streets of Jerusalem at the death of Jesus, and they still didn't believe. I mean, can you imagine walking down, you know, you're walking down the street in Jerusalem and go, Uncle Harry? We buried him 12 years ago. What's he doing here? It was a witness that a resurrection was coming. Jesus raised Lazarus as a witness. This is just a picture for what's about to happen with me. And and so we have his challenge and then his command, Lazarus, come forward. Literally, it means Lazarus, this way out. This way out. Now, how does a blind man, dead man, who can't hear, who can't see, who can't walk, he's wrapped up in grave clothes, how does he do it? He does it by the power of God. God called him out, and God provided the power for him to come out. Now, if you knew the way that the Jews wrapped the body, it would be wrapped in pound after pound after pound of of grave clothes, and there would be ointments and and perfumes in there to try to hold the, the stench back. For a while and so you know i mean I, I i know what we saw there but really lazarus was probably kind of coming out like this because i mean he wasn't going hey guys i'm back <laughs> he was bound up and jesus calls him out he gave a dead man power now the bible and you'll hear you know th- this is one thing and if it's on if it's on one of your relatives markers don't get mad at me okay you see people, you go through a cemetery and you see asleep in Jesus. And somewhere along the line, even Christians started believing in soul sleep, that people are just asleep. They're just resting. They're just taking that long nap that they finally deserve for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years until Jesus comes back and goes, Ring, time to wake up. No. That body is decaying in a grave. But the person, the spirit of that person, is alive in the presence of God. That person is fully aware. Somehow, we don't understand it, but maybe joined with that great cloud of witnesses. There's an army of saints that are going to come with God when He comes back to take this earth. I mean, you, you look at the scripture and, and you look at what it says. It does not teach soul sleep. In fact, if you read the story of the rich man in hell, you will realize that those in hell are fully aware. Now, I mean, you want to know what one of the things in hell is, what one of the realities of hell is? Jesus told that parable and that story about the rich man and Lazarus, about the rich, different Lazarus, about a rich man in hell who was fully aware of what was going on in heaven. You want to know what hell is? Hell is knowing what is going on in heaven, and you are separated by a great gulf, and you can't get there because you rejected Christ in this life. That's hell. 
Oh, Jesus, would you, would you send the prophets? Oh, they've had Abraham and the prophets. And the rich man in hell says, but if someone would come back from the dead, then my brothers would believe. And Jesus said, no, they wouldn't. Because someone has come back from the dead. By the way, the only quote-unquote religious leader that ever has. And people still reject him. The Bible does not teach soul sleep. It teaches that people are awake and aware. There is a punishment for rejecting Jesus that is beyond our ability to understand. Verse 44. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was unwrapped round with cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. He started stirring in the grave, and, but Lazarus was in a predicament. He, he was still wrapped in grave clothes. And so Jesus said, you unwrap him and let him go. Now, let me just give you some applications here. Because Jesus is the resurrection, if we believe in him, we will live again. We will live eternally. Because Jesus is life. We never truly die. In fact, when someone we love dies, we don't really say goodbye. We say, we'll see you later. There is a reunion coming with those that have gone before us. Uh, this week, uh, Kay Dunn and Ron Owens, Ron who is writing Ron Dunn's biography will go and we were sending some messages back and forth this week because Kay was trying to take care of their daughter Kim who was very bad health at the time that Ron died and she didn't even remember what happened at the graveside so I had to walk her back through what happened at the graveside that day because the graveside was just family just uh, Joanne uh, Ron's secretary and her husband and Tom Ellis and Terry and I that was it it wasn't all the people that were, it was just a quiet, private burial. And there was a grave of Ronnie, their son who took his own life on Thanksgiving Day. How'd you like to remember that every Thanksgiving? And then there's a marker where Ron's coffin was laid in the ground. And I began to reflect back on that day as I buried the one of the best friends I ever had in this life. And I just remember, just today I remembered what I said when I walked away. I said, I'll see you later. See, you, you never say goodbye to people that you love and to people that know the Lord and love the Lord because there's a reunion coming. There's a reunion coming. Vance Havner used to say, I believe, he said, my daddy used to wear an old blue uh, serge suede suit. And he said it was all worn out on the sleeves and on the knees. He only had one. And he said, I'd come in from preaching and I'd come into the train station. That train would round into Jugtown, North Carolina. And he said, there'd be my old daddy standing there in that old suit with the worn out sleeves and worn out cuffs and everything else. And he said, my daddy would look at me and say, how'd you do? He said, I believe one day 
that I'm going to leave this life and I'm going to meet my daddy in heaven and my daddy's going to say, how'd you get along? How'd you do? You see, the great hope of the Christian life is in the family of God, we never lose family. We just don't get to see them for a while. But we never lose family. I don't know if that encourages you. It encourages me that uh, we're going to get to see people again that we don't get to see right now that have influenced us. And we're going to get to say things to people that we didn't get to say. And, and heaven's about Jesus. But listen, Jesus gathered a family. And he is building a family of faith. And one day we're all going to be there. And we're not going to look at skin color. We're not going to look at what kind of car we drove or what house we lived in or, or what we had or where we lived or anything else. There's going to be one reason why we're in heaven. We all got to heaven through the same door, the door of Jesus Christ. He's the resurrection and the life. We were born physically alive, but we were dead spiritually. When we give our lives to Christ, John 3 says we're born again, and we're made alive, and there's no second death. So here's, here's why I, I don't understand why we struggle so much walking around in old grave clothes all wrapped up in things from our past, things from the old man that bind us and hold us back when God has set us free to live and to walk in power and in liberty and in freedom. He, he said to those watching, unbind him, let him go. And by that little phrase, let him go, here's what I have written down. The moment of his resurrection was also the moment of his release. Do you realize that when God set you free from the law of sin and death, he didn't just set you free so that one day you'd be resurrected. He released you from the power of sin on your life. You don't have to live in the power of sin on your life. And so look at verse 45. This is what, this is always the case. It's the case with Jesus. It's the case now. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. You know, God ticks people off even when he does good things. Some believed. Some people saw that and said, you know, Jesus must be who he says he is. He must be the Messiah. And some went and tattled on him to the Pharisees and said, you know, Jesus is doing things that, you, that wasn't in the order of worship and wasn't in the bulletin. He's doing stuff that we didn't vote on. It's not in our Constitution and bylaws. It's not in our rules and regulations. I mean, somebody needs to go correct this guy because if you don't watch it, he's going to be raising people from the dead and everybody's going to get happy in Jesus. And then y'all got you guys are going to lose a job. And they got mad. And so guess what the Pharisees thought? The way to get rid of this guy is to kill him. And Jesus said, go ahead. You take my life, I lay it down. And on the third day, I'll raise it back up. Jesus is always in the resurrection business. Always. And so I want to give you four suggestions before we pray. First of all, you have a life to live. Live it for Jesus. You have a life to live. Live it for Jesus. 
Don't waste your life living for other things that won't matter. You know, the only thing we're going to be able to take to heaven with us are the word of God and the souls of men. You have a life. God's given you a breath. Ed Litton and I were uh, talking this week at this pastor's conference. And he said, you know, Michael, the one thing I've realized, and Tammy's been dead now almost four years. And he said, you know, the one thing I realize is every day is a gift from God. He said, if it didn't do anything else for me, it reminded me that every day God gives me breath is a gift. And I need to live it for him. You have a life to live. Live it for Jesus. Don't waste it and live with regrets. Number two, you have a death to face. Make sure you know Jesus. You have a death to face. Make sure you know Jesus. Not make sure you're a church member. Not make sure you've been baptized. Not make sure that somebody told you you were saved. But you have a death to face. Make sure you know Jesus. Everybody you meet has a death to face. They should make sure they know Jesus. Number three, you have a judgment to face. Make sure you're ready. You have a judgment to face. Make sure you're ready to face that judgment. Straighten out what needs to be straightened out. Forgive what needs to be forgiven. Build bridges where bridges need to be built. Burn bridges that need to be burned. But make sure you're ready to face the judgment. Now, just kind of give yourself a mental picture here for just a second. Let's just say we're all in. By the way, that judgment does not come the moment we die. It comes at the end of time because the judgment of the works of your life as a believer cannot be summed up in this moment or at the end of your days. It has to wait until the fulfillment of your life. So the judgment of our works is what we did when we were alive and what we left behind and how we influence and the life we influence. You realize that every one of us, everybody in this room is a Gentile as far as I know, uh, that every one of us is the result of the Apostle Paul leaving Jerusalem and going out with the gospel. Do you realize that Paul's been sitting around for 2,000 years waiting for the day when he will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the works done in the body. And so Paul's going to be sitting there and he's going to go, all right, Lord, what's up? It's just the cat paraphrase. Lord, what's up? Well, I got this whole group of people from Sherwood Baptist Church and they're standing over here and, uh, they wouldn't have been in the kingdom. They wouldn't have known me if it hadn't been for you taking the gospel to the Gentiles and people following what you did and Timothy following it and others following it. And then if it hadn't have been for those who came through the Reformation, Martin Luther and others who came through the Reformation and then the Quakers and the pilgrims who came across and brought the gospel into America to have a place to practice their religion with freedom, all of these people have skin in this game life there's no I know ancestry.com is a really cool thing and we're trying to trace some things on ancestry.com but can I tell you something 
Somebody came to America one day somewhere, landed somewhere on a boat. It could have been a slave ship. It could have been on the Mayflower. Somebody got to these shores one day, and either they knew the gospel or they heard the gospel, and you can trace the fact that they didn't just come here and get freedom. They came here and got Christ, and somewhere in your line, they told somebody who 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 told somebody else who told somebody else and told somebody else and told somebody else, and that person told you. And so it's somehow it is credited to their account. Let me, just, let me just play with this for a minute. Is that okay? You realize that every one of you that prayed as we've made these four movies for lives to be touched and lives to be changed, somehow in God's economy, I don't know how he does it, he must be the master CPA, but somehow in God's economy, Every life that's been changed, every man that's stepped up, every marriage that's been saved, every soul that's been saved has at some point a small percentage maybe, but at some point there is credited to your account the salvation of people that you will not meet until eternity. And not only that, but because of what you did, the people that come after them and come after them and come after them and come after them. So the reason we have to wait until the end of time is because your good works continue long after you're gone. You see, that's why it's not good for us to get on a high horse and say, look at what all we're doing in Sherwood Baptist Church now. Because there are people that died that came before us on whose shoulders we stand. And the reason we're here is because they were here before us. And they poured something into the life of this church. And they never saw some of the things we've been able to see. But they invested so we could get to this point. Our responsibility is to invest so the next generation can get to the next point, and to the next point, and to the next point, so that one day we will see all of this that has happened through our faithfulness and obedience to God. And then we will not pat ourselves on the back and tell God how great we were and how lucky he was to have us. The scripture says we will lay it all at his feet in worship that he let us be a part of it. There's nobody strutting in glory. Because whoever gets the most crowns doesn't win. Whoever gets the most crowns gets to lay the most at the feet of Jesus and walk away. And not take one back to their mansion and put it on a rack and see how it looks from time to time. You see, you don't know what is to come. That's why you never quit working. That's why you never retire from Christian life because you don't know what God's going to do with the lives that you've touched. I mean, you know, social media is an incredible thing. Sometimes it's a dangerous thing. But I got a Facebook message from a guy that I have literally not seen since 1985. I had no idea where he was. And he was in my youth group. He was one of the big knuckleheads. I mean, this guy, I just, you know, his girlfriend broke up with him at youth camp. Youth camp is always where you fall in love or break up. I don't know what happens, but his girlfriend broke up with him at youth camp, and he got mad and hit the wall, did not know that the wall was solid concrete, and broke this hand. 
And I told him what I thought about how dumb that was. And then the guy that took him to the hospital told him on the 20-minute drive how dumb he thought that was. But here's what he said to me on Facebook a few weeks ago. He said, Michael, he said, I still have notes of sermons that you preached on Wednesday night. And he said, I have never forgotten the things that you taught me about loving God and serving God. And he said, there's not a day that goes by that something you said when you were my youth minister hasn't influenced my life and my choices. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I had no idea that. I mean, I look at some of the sermons I've preached back. I look at some of the sermons I've preached here and go, that's, you know, wood for the fire. I mean, it's not for anything good. But you and I have a judgment to face. And when we stand before that judgment, I want to stand before God as best I understand it and long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that I have lived in a way and served God in a way that that's what I hear. And by the way, if that's not our goal as believers, then why do we want to go to heaven? I mean, I don't want to go there and go, okay, fire escape group that just got in by the seat of your pants, y'all stand in this line over here. And then everybody in heaven look and go, fire escape group. Got in by the seat of their pants. Or as one preacher said about that passage in Corinthians, saved but singed. <laughs> A little too close to the world to make an impact. Lastly, you have a grace to appropriate. You have a grace to appropriate. Make your one life glorify God. You have a grace to appropriate. Make your one life glorify God. I sent a tweet out this week. I was amazed at the number of people that uh, retweeted it or commented on it. I don't even remember exactly what I said, but I was sitting um, somewhere and just thinking about life. And I sent this little 140-character message out. So much of life, and I'm so far behind on my sanctification. You know, I wish I could do some things over. I mean, I really do. I wish I could have not said some things that I've said. I wish I had not done some things that I've done. I wish I had done some things differently as pastor of this church in my early days. I wish I'd done some things differently in the last week. But I don't get that choice. So whatever I'm going to do for Jesus, I better make sure I'm doing it under his control in a way that hopefully glorifies him because if I don't I will have wasted the one life that he gave me to live for him but this is what I know I know that he is the life he is the I am who is the door who's the shepherd who's the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection in the life. The living water, he's the bread of life. 
when God said in the book of Exodus where we began this study, you tell them I am sent you. He didn't define himself except in that broad term, I am. And can I tell you that tonight, he is still I am. And you can fill it in this way. Whatever you need, I am. Whatever you're lacking, I am. Whatever your hurt, I am. The great I am is sufficient for every moment of our lives up to the last moment when we see him face to face.